WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Colin Bunn, writer of lots of stuff. Uh, talk to him about Absolute Carnage Scream, Men Are Black, Unearth, his Graveyard Slaughter Kickstarter, Punk Mambo, Roku, and uh, that's not even all the stuff he's got out now or is working on. <laughs> uh, we talk about his favorite horror stuff, classic arcade games, the comic scene in Missouri, uh, how karate is a gateway drug to owning your own dojo, and uh, I do my best Crypt Keeper impersonation, for which I apologize in advance. Uh, anyway, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? We got stuff. Uh, if you haven't yet, you should check out World Heaven's two-part interview with writer Elliot Rahal. It is deep, it is thorough, it is good, uh, and it gets into the story from Elliot's childhood that partly inspired his upcoming Aftershock series, Midnight Vista. Uh, you should also check out Matt Lazarus's tribute to comics' best anthropomorphic cat daddies. Uh, speaking of which, did you see this week is the last issue of Fair Lady? Uh, it's a bummer. Uh, we really like that comic, and I uh, memorialized it in this week's Sunday editorial. Uh, plus, X-Man of the Week! It's the Phalanx! Who knew? In 2019, people will be talking about the third best alien race associated with the X-Men. Uh, check it all out over at WMQComics.com. But for now, here are me and Matt and Colin. Uh, so, Colin, it's in uh, scheduling this interview, uh, I learned that you're taking martial arts classes. Uh, what are you uh, What are you practicing? <laughs> I don't know if I'm practicing. I'm, I, I need more practice. Um, I am a, I'm taking Kenpo. Uh, okay. Kenpo right now. So uh, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't get too excited about it. I don't think I'm that that good at it yet. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's very early in my in my uh, in my lessons. Okay. Still further along than I am. That's for sure. <laughs> or me. <laughs> uh, how how long have you been doing it? Oh, only if I mean I took I took various you know I, I did various things as a you know as a younger man. Uh-huh. Um, I've only been doing these these lessons uh, for. Uh, a few months now. I I got back into it because my son is very uh, very interested in it and very excited about it. So I thought it'd be something I could do with him. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah. I, I have friends whose daughter got involved in uh, karate at six or seven, and now she's fourteen, and they're part owners of the dojo they've gotten so into the culture. Oh wow! So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have a friend who who also got into it uh, a few years back, and yeah, got so into the the culture of it all that he now has his own dojo. So uh, that's not where I go. But he's in another part of the country. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting how excited people can get about it. My son is uh, eight, and he's probably going to test for his brown belt. Uh, in karate at the end of the month, but he's probably a good 20 years out from dojo ownership. <laughs> you never know. He could, that could be his thing. That is true. Absolutely. Um, so in in starting out uh, the research for this interview, you know, trying to compile a, a list of books that you're either working on now or that have been announced or solicited, obviously uh, it's a lot. Uh, at the risk of sort of diving right, yeah, <laughs> writing, you know, diving right into the deep end, you know, how do you, how do you kind of keep all this straight in your head? Are you one of those people who has like you know fifty uh, Google Doc tabs open on your desktop at any given point, or, or are you very like you know, do you have like spreadsheets kind of keeping track of of you know what's due when and all that? Well, I do have a lot of Google Docs open right now. It seems like, and a lot of uh, a lot of calendars open. Yeah, I use uh, you know I. 
sometimes uh, I'm better at keeping it straight than others. <laughs> um, lately, it seems like I've not been doing too good a job of keeping things straight. But uh, but yeah, I uh, I you know keep a lot of different folders, a lot of different uh, you know a lot of different to do lists, uh, and then I just try to you know uh, keep track of of what needs to be done when and uh, and and kind of tackle it in the order that makes the most sense. Do you ever find that you know you've got the the creative juices are flowing so to speak on x project but you've got to kind of dial it back because you know y project is due you know in a week yeah for sure uh, uh that's a that's a that's a pretty standard curse i think it's <laughs> so yeah I'll, I'll be and and that surfaces you know at, at the most random times it'll i'll be working on one project and suddenly uh, this wonderful idea for another project pops into my head, and and all I can really do is I keep a I keep a notebook next to my keyboard at all times, and when those ideas pop up, I'll jot that idea down and 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 have it nearby so that I can uh, I can you know address it when when the time comes. Um, so we're we're recording this just as as uh, absolute carnage is ramping up at Marvel, and you've got a role to play in it. Of course, you're writing the uh, Scream tie-in. Uh, what can you tell us about this particular uh, symbiote host? Nothing. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's a uh, uh, so Scream is uh, a symbiote that has been around for for a long time now. I mean, it was, she, she debuted in the nineties, I guess. Um, um, and she's been called everything from she venom to, you know, various other names, but her name is scream. And, uh, she was actually, uh, killed during, uh, Rick Remender's run on venom. Scream was, uh, assassinated by Eddie Brock. Uh, so that's where we pick up this character. It has been dead for a while now. And uh, uh, how the heck does she have her own series? And that's uh, that's where we're going. We're going to see in this book. We'll see uh, Scream's original host uh, Donna Diego. We'll also see uh, some other uh, other symbiote hosts playing a big role in the story, or former symbiote hosts playing a big role in the story. Uh, in particular, uh, Patricia Robertson, who was Venom for a short period of time. And uh, and Andy Benton, who was Mania for a short period of time, have a, a big role to play in this in this series. I forget how many symbiotes are floating around out there now. Oh my gosh, so many! Back in the day, it was Venom and Carnage, and then yeah, uh, Scream. I remember Scream and a couple of the others popping up in that first. Venom solo miniseries way back in the day, and then there was Toxin, and oh, there's uh, a lot. We running, yeah, we're we're starting to run out of weird, creepy sounding names for them at this point. Well, we uh, you know, Remender and I did our best to kill them all off, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that's uh, that has been undone. Uh, I mean, and I'm a part of the the undoing of it. But yeah, we uh, we did what we could to get rid of them. I, I'm not a hundred percent on this, but 
I feel like Scream is the one when they did that 3D Spider-Man ride at Universal. That was the symbiote they ended up using. That sounds right. Yeah. That sounds that sounds right. She's she's visually pretty cool. Her hair, you know, she she has like living hair, so that's mm-hmm. kind of neat. Um, but uh, but yeah, I for some reason I think you're right. I think Scream was in that Universal ride. But, uh, you know, like Eddie Brock, you and Venom have a long history, uh, you know, and a lot of that continuity is being reflected in, in Absolute Carnage as, you know, he goes uh, host hunting. Uh, what, what is it about Venom specifically that keeps you coming back? You know, besides Marvel obviously saying, we'll pay you. <laughs> you know, it's a, I, uh, I have a lot of fondness uh, for Venom. Um, most of that comes from uh, my time writing uh, Flash Thompson as Venom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of fond memories of, of writing that series at the time, and uh, and I just uh, I like the idea of this symbiotic relationship and how that changes uh, both the symbiote and the host, and how uh, those two things can play against each other. Um, I like that most of the the major well, maybe all of the symbiotes are broken in some way. All the hosts. Have uh, have some serious issues. Eddie Brock, for instance, is no, you know, he is he's full of issues. Uh, Flash Thompson was the same way. He was a terrible superhero, and uh, you know, I just like that they are that I like that those characters are kind of flawed and failed, and uh, and it's interesting to me that this would these would be the people that these symbiotes choose as their hosts. It, it also says uh, a lot about. Peter Parker, the original, uh, well, I mean, chronologically, obviously, but, uh, you know, because he's not exactly uh, perfect either, and you could argue the whole self-punishing thing he's been doing for 50-plus years is, is, you know, evidence of, of him, you know, him being broken as well. Correct. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, we initially reached out uh, a few months back to talk about Unearth, uh, your new series from Image with Kyle Strom, am I getting that right? Yeah. Uh, and Baltimore Rivas. Um, yes. The interesting thing about the creative team is that you're, you're all based in Missouri, uh, which Dan pointed out. And in fact, there's a couple of other guys that way too, uh, like uh, Brian Hurt and Matt Kent. Just how big is the comic scene in the St. Louis area? Because I'm starting to think it's the Portland of the Midwest. <laughs> you know, uh, it, I don't know if St. Louis holds that uh, that that moniker, but uh, you know the Midwest in general. I mean, so you know, in the St. Louis area, there's Matt Kent and Brian Hurt and, and Marie Inger, so all of Heck Studios. Mm-hmm. But there's also Rick Burchett. There's uh, Chris Somney. Um, you know, so there's there's quite a few uh, creators there. Um, I don't live in St. Louis anymore. I'm a, a couple hours outside of St. Louis. But uh, then you start looking towards Kansas City, and you have a whole nother, you know, a slew of, of creators like Kyle Strom and Baltimore Rivas and Jason Aaron and, uh, and, and Andy Parks uh, and, and Scotty Young. So there's just a, there's a big, you know, a community in the Midwest within a few hours of each other uh, for sure. So maybe the Midwest just in general is the Portland of the Midwest. Right. <laughs> I like that. 
Uh, one of our one of our listeners, uh, Robert Secundus, wanted to know: Is there a particular piece of, of fiction, be it a, a comic, novel, movie, uh, whatever, that you feel accurately encapsulates that uh, that Missouri swagger? Oh wow! What a question. Um, I'm not sure. Winter's Bone, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you that I I lived in the area where Winter's Bone was filmed, and it's pretty accurate. So maybe that's a, maybe that's a you know if you're gonna if you're gonna live in that area, you gotta have a little swagger to make it. <laughs> there we go. Um, getting getting back to Unearth uh, in, in in you know kind of looking uh, looking at Baltimore, I uh, found out that he's also a court illustrator, which you know is is awesome. Uh, how did you guys connect originally? So Baltimore um, came to me uh, through Kyle. Kyle and Baltimore met at a convention, I believe, and uh, and Kyle teaches uh, at, the uni- at one of the universities, and he uh, reconnected with Baltimore through that. And Kyle and I have always wanted to do a book together. Uh, we we have very similar sensibilities when it comes to to horror, and uh, we wanted to do something. And we just thought Baltimore was such a talent that we wanted to. To, to get him involved in some way so that was all through you know Kyle Kyle introduced me to Baltimore and then we all just started you know talking about the kind of books we'd want to do and, and Unearth is the first of those the first thing to come from those conversations awesome uh, you know, thinking about the art on that book, you know, I love how the the, the people who've caught the disease, you know, they turn to these uh, basically giant pink flesh blobs or, or carapaces. Uh, you know, when it comes to the look of that stuff, in, in the conversations that you, Kyle, and Baltimore had, you know, did you guys go to Baltimore and just like surprise me, or you know, did you tend to be more kind of specific with the, with those kinds of horror elements? Um, it's a little of both. There, uh, believe it or not, there's a method to the madness of this illness. So there are certain uh, there there are certain designs that we kind of we had specific. There were specific needs uh, that that we had to have met. But for the most part, we you know we don't get to a lot. We don't detail those in you know paragraphs and paragraphs of description of these horrible creatures. We we kind of tell you know we kind of put in the scripts. Uh, enough to get our idea across, and then Baltimore just goes crazy with it. So uh, there's, you know, we we describe as much as we need to when it's important. You know, there's some some visual element that we must get across. We'll make sure that's described in the script. Um, but otherwise, it's a uh, it's a probably we we describe these creatures in maybe a sentence or two, and then let Baltimore just go crazy. So. Uh, Colin, I've been following your work since uh, Sixth Gun came out for Free Comic Book Day. Awesome. Um, well, thank you. And you're welcome. And I could spend hours just talking to you about Sixth Gun and The Damned and Harrow County, uh, especially Harrow County. Which Let's is do one- it. Yeah. <laughs> just set aside <laughs> hours right now. <laughs> I mean, Harrow County is one of my – I read a lot of horror comics, and it's probably one of my top three – modern horror comics i i love it and so i was and am really excited about matter black which i love the first issue um and you're co-writing that with uh brian hurt who is your sixth gun collaborator and the art is from tyler crook who is the artist on harrow county um can you tell us a bit about how that project came about yeah um we uh so as we were wrapping up uh, Harrow County 
I, I knew I wanted to do something else with with Tyler, and and we wanted to work together on a, a new project, something different. And at the same time, Brian Hurt and I have been we're constantly developing story ideas um, that we want you know stories we want to tell. Whether he's the artist or he's a co-writer, um, just you know we're we're always kicking ideas around. Um, so as Harrow County was wrapping up, we we floated the idea. Um, to our editor, or to my, or to the Harrow County editor, about hey, would you be interested in Tyler drawing something new for us and Brian co-writing it with with me? And and he was interested, and we we had a number of ideas that we were kicking around. Uh, as I remember it, uh, I wrote the pitch for Manor Black uh, as a text message on my phone while I was out with friends. Uh, this it was an idea that that Brian and I have talked about going back years now in, in, in some in various different forms but uh, I remember texting our editor our editor one night so it was a really long text message saying hey how about this idea and just this random rambling text message about man or black uh, that was the, that's how we pitched it to the editor and, and I think I got a message back within within a half hour and he said yes let's do that and then then of course we had to put a real pitch together but uh, but that was the initial pitch was through text message <laughs> and it was it was just me kind of uh, pulling together ideas that Brian and I had been talking about for I mean uh, without exaggeration for years we've been talking about Manor Black in different forms of it uh, for those out there who haven't picked up the first issue can you kind of throw us that that text message or the elevator pitch on the book <laughs> So Manor Black is uh, sort of a gothic uh, soap opera. It's about a family of sorcerers. Uh, the The head of the family is reaching uh, the point in li- his this point in life where he's going to have to choose a successor and he's going to have to step down. So there are many members of his family that think they should be the successor. Um, and as this is going on, though, uh, a new uh, sorcerer arrives on the scene and she is pursued by this mysterious figure who seems to be who's hunting her down and uh, and she kind of throws everything into disarray uh, as she uh, she brings this family into uh, you know face to face with this threat that she's facing very it's a very very it was a very cool first issue very yeah. much very much dark shadows I mean that's we lean into things like dark shadows. Uh, nobody remembers it, but I, you know, I, when I put the pitch documents together, Dark Shadows was one of my sort of inspirational mood board type things. I put Dark Shadows there, but then I also put a show no one remembers called American Gothic. Uh, Someone's at the door. Yes, there you I, go. I remember, right, you remember it. it. Yeah, there you go. So there was, you know, American Gothic and Dark Shadows and just uh, 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 many, many covers of Gothic novels that were, you know, from the 50s and 60s. Uh, these are all in the mood board for this book. Very awesome. cool. So, uh, you know, you're work you're working with uh, Brian on on Men Are Black, and you know, you're working with Kyle on Unearth. You know, you work with co-writers pretty frequently. Do you tend to have a formula for how you divvy up duties when you're working with a writing partner like that? They do everything I say, and if they <laughs> don't, they're out. No. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah. No. Uh, it's different with every co-writer, and I, you know. Pretty much my entire um, writing career, I've dealt with co-writers in one form or another. 
Uh, I did a lot early on at Marvel. I did a lot of different co-writing projects. Uh, and everyone was different in that sometimes the books I co-wrote, it was very much a a partnership, you know, and, and we each did half the book. And in other cases, there are books out there that say co-written where uh, I got a bulleted list from the other creator <laughs> and and basically a go with God. And uh, I would just write based on, a, you know, six bullet points that they had and I would write the rest of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's different every time. Um, the way it works best and, and most of the time uh, with creator on the creator on projects, this is how it works. Um, we get on the phone, the, the writers get on the phone and we kind of talk out uh, the big beats of what's going to happen in every issue. We get a good idea of what, what's going to happen. And then uh, if I can, I'll outline it with them and break those beats down into pages. So I'll say, okay, though this, this scene takes place on pages one to two. This scene takes place on three to seven. And I just break it down in, in very specific which pages take, you know, which scenes take place in which pages. Mm-hmm. And then we break it uh, again. Half the pages go to one create writer, and half the pages go to the other. Um, sometimes there's a one or two page difference. You know, maybe issue one I'm writing, you know, twelve pages, uh, and then on issue issue two I'm writing nine or something. It just it, it depends on how the scenes break down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just kind of de- we kind of talk it out. Which scenes are we most excited about? Which ones do we want to write? Which ones do we think are, you know, which ones do I think are my partner is better suited to write? Uh, we write our scenes separately, and then we bring them together and kind of massage them with the hope that it'll seem as though, you know, it'll look as if it's all been written in one pass. You won't be able to tell who wrote which pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, I guess, obviously, when you're when it's one comic with two writers, it's a it's a, it's a different experience. But I'm I'm kind of curious how far removed is it from you know working in, in big two comics for as long as you have obviously you know you've been involved in a number of event comics and even just writing say x-men blue for example you've got to be mindful of what's going on in gold to a certain extent so i, I guess you know when you're doing those kinds of, of books you know the the where you know you're writing it but it's still part of that larger shared universe how how much are you how, how much are you looking over your shoulder i guess at any given point at you know what the next person's doing um well it's uh it's it's important with those marvel and dc books you know any shared universe book it's important to kind of you know that's the whole point of a shared universe um a lot of that falls on the editor's shoulder shoulders they should be you know paying attention to to you know what characters have appeared where or what these characters are doing in other books and and hopefully making it so uh it all plays well together mm-hmm. and there are times you know uh i try to do you know my due diligence so when i take on a new project for marvel or or dc or valiant i read what's you know what's currently coming out and what's come out before so that i can you know make sure my story works but it's pretty impossible these days for a writer to keep track of everything so (laughs) that's where the editor and the editorial team hopefully uh you know is on top of that um now sometimes well like the big event books and things they'll they'll have summits where they bring everybody in 
and they talk the story out, and, and then you're right there with all the other writers. So if you say you know something that doesn't jive, they're going to speak up hopefully and say that doesn't work because this is happening in this book. Um, so and that happens frequently with the big events. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just general, generally, um, you know, I pitch what I want to do in the in the book, and the editor approves it, and then you know I move forward. You know, there are times where you know, I get a call and I say, hey, we didn't realize that this character is dying in this book or this character's costume is vastly different or this character's going through major changes and I may have to adjust. And that's just the nature of the beast of those books. And uh, and I'm fine with that because that's all part of a shared universe. Certainly. Um, were you, did you get to be part of the, uh, the Absolute Carnage uh, Summit or retreat? <laughs> no, no, uh, because the only thing I'm really doing with with Absolute Carnage was uh, the the uh, the funeral pyre single issue that I did for Web of Venom, and then uh, abs- the the Scream miniseries. So I wasn't uh, as part of that, and that was probably a much smaller summit. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, uh, the summits for books like that, rather than being every creative team. Uh, is usually just the writer and the artist and the edit and the editors. Um, so it's a very uh, the, the writer of the main book and the editors. It's, uh, uh, and that's like when I did Monsters Unleashed uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, and then the Venomverse books. It was just me and several editors sitting in a room talking, <laughs> talking about the stories. So that the those summits are different for different events uh, and different different projects. Um, but for those, I just, they've sent me all the scripts that they had coming up for the, you know, for the book. So I had all, I had access to the scripts that had been written and the outlines for the series and things like that before I started. So you're talking about, you just talked to us how some of these summits, it's you and the, the artist involved. And I'm curious, since there, you've written so many different books with so many different artists, do you cater your scripts differently to artists who you've worked with before or regularly like Brian Hurt and Tyler Crook versus someone who you're new with or do you just have a, a, a style with which you write and you kind of run with that uh, yes and no um, I don't have a short like a shortcut script um, for Brian and Tyler even though I've written many many scripts for them there's the scripts I write still look like every other script it's uh in fact uh if i tried to write uh a shorthand script for brian he'd get very angry at me probably (laughs) um and uh so i just write my scripts the way i write every script i don't want to say every script the same but I, i i i write a full script for every creator now there are naturally over the years there are things i know that tyler loves to do i know that there are things brian loves to do and I might incorporate that into a script that I'm writing for them versus a script I'm writing for someone uh, that I've never worked with before. Um, but I don't, you know, my, my script style and, and the information I put in the scripts doesn't really change from uh, creator to creator unless, you know, there are, you know, there there are, you know, they may have a certain uh, style they prefer. I was just talking to, uh, Javier Salteres, who another uh, Midwest comic book creator, 
um, and we were talking about working on something together, and I'd sent him a script, uh, you know, just to introduce an idea for a story to him. And then it was written the same way I always write scripts. And then a few weeks or months later, I was talking to him, and I, I realized that he really wants to work in the old-school Marvel way of mm. scripting. He doesn't want a full script. And the scripts he prefers and the scripts he really loves are very, very loose, and uh, that's what he likes. So it, it was a little bit of an eye-opener for me. I was kind of like, well, maybe I need to start making sure what kind of style they want early on. So you've been playing uh, a little bit in the, uh, the Valiant sandbox lately, uh, first with Punk Mambo, which uh, wraps the week that we're recording this, and uh, now you've yes. got Roku coming in the fall. Uh, that is, uh, Roku's not a character that uh, I was familiar with prior to this. Uh, you know, what can you what can you tell us about her? So, uh, Roku is uh, sort of a super spy. Um, she is a deadly ninja who also has telekinetic hair and psychic abilities. Um, so she's she's full of tricks and she's extremely deadly. She has uh, she was a a British agent, and she was killed and brought back to life by ninjas, <laughs> and uh, a as tends to happen, in <laughs> and uh, uh, they gave her these super abilities and the psychic connection, and uh, she's uh, she's definitely a, uh, a a deadly, deadly killing machine, um, and she is not a hero. She is she's always been a villain. She's mainly been in uh, ninja ninjack. Okay, or is it Ninja K? I can't can't remember. It, it varies cool. from, from yeah, it it, it yeah. varies from time of the characters being written at this particular moment to next. I think right, but Ninja to me has always sounded cooler, so that's who what it is. But she's always been a uh, a supporting character or a villain in Ninja, mm -hmm. and uh, this though is her time to shine. This isn't a book where Ninja doesn't show up. This is uh, this is Roku. And she is on a, uh, a mercenary mission. She's trying to ret retrieve some intelligence assets. And uh, every other criminal criminal and military organization in the world also wants these assets. So she's kind of put at odds with a number of, uh, of different killers. Uh, we're going to introduce a lot of new characters in this, in this series. Um, so it's, and it's going to be a very, very high-octane... Uh, I'm not giving readers a chance to catch their breath. It's going to move from from action. You know, it, it's a very high energy uh, comic script. No previous knowledge of the character required. None at all. You can, um, if you can accept that there is a, a ninja with telekinetic hair, then that's all you need to be able to do. <laughs> all right. That sounds or good. psychokinetic. I'm not yet yeah, psychokinetic <laughs> hair. Um, how are how are you enjoying playing in the uh, Valiant Sandbox? I really like it. Um, uh, Punk Mamba was was uh, was just sheer joy for me. I mean, it's it's the kind of story I really love. It's the kind of story I always wished Marvel and DC would would let me uh, sink my teeth into. I love the supernatural detective genre, and that's what I embraced with Punk Mambo. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we'll do more Punk Mambo stories in the future. Uh, but I just like, uh, I like that it, even though the, the, 
the current iteration of the Valiant Universe has been around for several years now. Mm-hmm. It still feels like you're getting in on the ground floor. There's still uh, plenty of uh, of wet paint to to play with. It's not uh, the the universe hasn't cemented uh, in the way uh, the DC or Marvel universe has over you know year decades and decades. So there's a lot of opportunity to to carve a a place. Uh, with Valiant, and that's what I really enjoy about it. And definitely, I do. You know, I appreciate the fact that they're still kind of feeling out new characters for series the way they've been, uh, especially in the last uh, couple of years. Oh yeah, for sure. And there's there's just and there's there's just so much potential, you know, uh, for different kinds of stories and different kinds of characters. And and I'm excited for the things they have planned in the future. So you just wrapped a, uh, a Kickstarter for a horror anthology, uh, Graveyard Slaughter. Uh, kind of a, a throwback to the movies that you'd find in uh, video stores back in the day. Uh, you, how did you get involved with this project? So uh, when I first moved to the town that I, I currently live in, um, and this has been a few years ago, uh, a number of creators in the area contacted me and... Uh, and asked, uh, you know, they asked to get together, and we went out and had dinner, and uh, and it was, you know, it was Kevin Watkins, who's a writer, and Gary Bedell, who's a very talented local artist, and Adam McLaughlin, who's an artist, and Javier Salteres, and we they, we all sat around, and they, you know, Kevin had this sort of brainstorm to do this horror anthology, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and we we talked about it there, and and I came up with one of the stories, you know, the general idea for one of the stories, while we were while we were sitting there at the table, and then we just slowly and you know, piece by piece over the next couple of years put it together, um, and it took a little longer maybe than we intended just for various reasons, you know, life happens, Certainly. but uh, but now that it's done, yeah, they they uh, lunchbox press which. Uh, just ran the Kickstarter and and it all wrapped up. So that book will be coming out in October. So uh, uh, and it's just a you know everyone at the table that night just has a love of that genre of horror and that era of horror when uh, when you know you could go <laughs> basically represented by these movies you'd rent at these hole in the wall video stores. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I loved the uh, the black and white look at the uh, early PDF that we uh, got to take a look at. Um, was that? I, I, f- I forget whether that was intended to be colored later or not. It's always intended to be black and white. Okay. So the, okay. the, the book, yeah. yeah, the book's going to be in black and white. Um, although you know, we're already. In fact, uh, this weekend there's a there's a, a the Springfield, Missouri Public Library puts on a small convention. Well, it's not small. They have thousands of people who show up. But they put on a comic book convention there in the library. And the entire creative team of Graveyard Slaughter is going to be there. And, uh, and one of the things we're doing while we're all there is, is uh, getting the second, the second book in the series ready to go. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Um, you know, we usually like to ask our guests what comics they remember you know reading growing up but uh you know i am i'm curious about what your uh, actually your horror touchstones were you know were you a freddie and jason guy or were you always kind of out there looking for the harder stuff um you know i uh i grew up reading a lot of 
a lot of horror anthology comics, a lot of Charlton horror books, a lot of House of Mystery and House of Secrets. Um, and, uh, and then I got into, at one point I, I had this dream of becoming uh, a special effects makeup artist. Hmm. And that's what I wanted to do for horror movies. So then I was deep into Fangoria and Gore Zone magazine and, uh, and, and those kinds of things and, and studying how to do special effects makeup. Uh, and at the, at the same time, as I was getting into those things, I was also getting into a lot of, uh, pros, uh, you know, Stephen King and Robert McCammon and, uh, and HP Lovecraft and, and Robert E. Howard's horror stories. So I was getting into a lot more and more horror fiction and that really started piquing my interest in telling horror stories. So, uh, um, it was a it was a mix of all those things that you know, yeah. I was a Freddie and Jason guy, but I was also into every other kind of horror story that was out there as well. Um, I don't know that I sought out the extreme, you know, anything too extreme, but I did like uh, some of the obscure horror stories and stuff. You, I'm a big King fan, but you just dropped uh, Robert McCammon as a name, and that's one that doesn't come up as much, but wrote one of my favorite horror novels have you read the wolf's hour oh yeah yeah <laughs> it the wolf's hour for those of you who don't know is about a british well a russian expatriate now british citizen werewolf who fights nazis so yes. it's a great concept um but mentioning that made me think you've written a lot of horror and horror is, is such a wide genre and it sort of encapsulates all these little sub genres um, yes. of your work. Sixth gun is a weird Western uh, Harrow County is Southern Gothic regression has a possession vibe. If not in a traditional possession sense, there's possession aspects there. Uh, you just mentioned punk Mambo is supernatural detective and uh, dark arc is monsters in the Bible. Uh, are there some of these sort of horror subgenres or tropes you haven't touched yet, but that you have that itch to try? Um, that's a tough question. Uh, first of all, just to circle back just a second, since you mentioned Wolf's Hour, you do know that he has a sequel to Wolf's Hour, I hope. If you don't, you should check it out. Uh, he has a book called The Hunter from the Woods that features that werewolf character from Wolf's Hour. There's a company called Graphic Audio that does full cast uh, adapta audiobook adaptations. Oh, nice. And they tend to market towards truckers for all the long <laughs> haul. I stumbled across them because my in-laws live many, many hours away. Not quite long enough to fly, but long enough that it's a god-awful drive. Right, And my wife and I stop at this uh, truck stop along the way, and they have these, uh, these graphic audios. And they've done uh, Marvel and DC novels adapted, but they've also done both The Wolf's Hour and The Hunter in the Woods. Oh, cool. And cool. I, I read The Wolf's Hour, and it's a, like a three-part, because they release them in small sets. So for a large novel, they take up like three of these sets. But Hunter in the Woods is one set, and I picked it up, and it was, yeah, I, it was phenomenal. I was so excited to see another story with that character. Yeah. No, um, so to answer your question, 
you know, I don't know. There's there's tons of, uh, of you know, I feel like I've done quite a few, you know, a, a variety of those subgenres. Because um, I've done, you know, horror comedy, and I've done, you know, s- things that are verging on splatterpunk, you know, horror. Um, I'm, you know, I could easily say science fiction horror, but uh, Unearth plays in that realm, and I have another book that hasn't been announced yet that also, you know, plays in the the science fiction and horror uh, genre. Um, I don't think, even though I feel like I've written many, many different, uh, already written many subgenres, I don't think I've I've even started to scratch the surface of the kind of stories I, I could tell, though. There's still so much potential out there. Um, you know, is your uh, you mentioned your son before? Is he also a uh, a horror fan? Uh, he likes some. He likes a little bit. You know, he's a he likes spooky stuff, but I don't know if he's a huge you know a diehard horror fan yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he hasn't uh, graduated up into some into the real you know into real horror. He's watched a few you know horror movies with me, mm-hmm. but uh, but they spook him out a little too much. Uh, okay. But he does like. You know, he does like, uh, he likes spooky stories, and uh, I've noticed that kids really love, I think there's some YouTube channels where people just sort of tell um, uh, stories of weird things that have happened to to them, and he likes those, those kind of things, so, um, so yeah, he's a, he's a, he's on his way to becoming a horror fan. Okay. Thinking back to uh, Graveyard Slaughter for a second here. Uh, you know, the funny thing a lot about a lot of those those sort of VHS treasures and a lot of early horror comics as well, you know, uh, the fact that they were, you know, these kind of darkly comedic morality plays and, you know, the people getting their comeuppance obviously are sinners of some kind or in the case of sort of that 80s horror, you know, at least a bunch of dumb, horny teenagers. Uh, you know, do you, do you have a, a favorite sort of, of that kind of like just desserts fate either in a, in a, you know, horror movie or comic or even like an old episode of Tales from the Crypt? Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I love those kind of stories. And, and as soon as you say it, the things I start thinking of is I think of movies like Pumpkinhead, which mm-hmm. is absolutely a story of, of revenge and, and the sort of the, the price of, of vengeance. Uh, but then Creepshow comes to mind. Um, you know, I'm not sure there are better representations of that kind of story than, uh, you know, the story where they, uh, where the the guys get buried out in the, in the beach and the water's washing. You know, the the tide's coming in and drowning them, and they come back as these, these you know, bloated, hideous corpses. <laughs> you know, that that creep. So Creepshow immediately jumps to mind as this. Uh, exercise in vin- horror vengeance stories. <laughs> Sorry for the chuckle, but that's exactly where my brain goes to. Uh, yeah. Something to tide you over. Yes, there it is. Something to tide you over, yeah. And those are, you know, that that all leads back to all the old EC comics, which I have, you know, proudly on my shelf back behind me. You know, those were great, great stories. They did fall back on that trope frequently, but, uh, but there's a reason, because they're awesome. I, I had to uh, stifle uh, th- laughing about the uh, the Tide title. Just you know, horror, great puns, great puns in horror. Oh yeah, there's there's one, and now I'm forgetting the title of it. Um, it's it, it's it's an old. I think it's a Tales from the Crypt, 
it's one of those and it's got a baseball theme and it also has an equally awful pun title where in the end the victim gets torn apart and his body is made into the baseball diamond and I cannot remember the title but it has just again one of those titles that's like you almost want to groan but you can't <laughs> resist because it's just such it's so perfect see I don't want to groan I want to cackle like the crypt keeper but you know I respect y'all's ears enough let's not hear to do it that. let's hear it <laughs> that's pretty good that wasn't bad. That that sounded more like the Saturday morning cartoon version of the Crypt Keeper. But... I still like it, so good job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I had to look it up. It was it was not a Tales from the Crypt. It was a Haunt of Fear. Uh, foul play. Because, of course. Yeah, th- there you go. There it is. <laughs> One you know one last uh, graveyard slaughter things I was thinking about you know I loved all the little timestamps in the book you know you never get that little caption box that says it is 1983 or, or or whatever but you know seeing sort of the original Star Wars posters and the Van Halen T-shirts and the kids playing Space Invaders in the in the you know bustling arcade back when arcades were things that bustled um, you know were were you sort of were, in addition to being a, a VHS uh, warrior were you also an arcade junkie perhaps. Oh yeah, um, you know that was that was uh, <laughs> that was Friday and Saturday night. You know, you went to the mall, and uh, so I guess that was a mall. I was a mall rat because that's where you went on Friday and Saturday night. You went to the mall and you hung out at the arcade. Ours in the mall was Take Ten. Uh, we also had one not far from the mall called Space Odyssey that was really awesome too. But yeah, I you know I spent a lot of time and a lot of quarters in the arcade um and uh and yeah i feel a little bit sad that uh, we don't have that i, I don't uh, arcades aren't the way they used to be you know they're not as cool as they used to be but that's just an old man ranting get off my lawn kids <laughs> but um but i i feel sad that we don't have arcades like we used to uh, my arcade didn't have any pride you didn't the games didn't spit out tickets you got your name on the high scoreboard and you were proud of it and the games were hard as shit, and they had kill screens. The games were very hard, and uh, and you were you knew that if you got the high score on your wrestling game, there, that one kid would come in on whatever whatever night he showed up and try to usurp your reign. But uh, you could you know you, you worked your best to come up with three initials that uh, were cool and clever, and uh, and that's how you that's how you had your claim to fame back then. Did you have a favorite arcade game? I was just listening to a podcast where people were counting down their five favorite classic video games. So I I had to sit back and think, and I wound up with my favorite being Rampage just because I could play as a giant werewolf, and that was cool to me. You know, it's it's tough. There there are a few that jumped to mind that... uh that were just amazing to me. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, it's, it's a game called victory road, um, which was a sequel to Ikari warriors. Okay. And it was sort of a top down game where your, your little guys in Ikari warriors, it was basically two little Rambos walking through a jungle, killing enemies. <laughs> um, but then, and you could spin the top of the joystick, could spin all the way around. So your body of your Rambo character would spin in, you know, 360 degrees to shoot enemies from any direction. 
Um, but then Victory Road came along and they put them in a science fiction setting and there were giant monsters and, you know, dudes in armor and you'd get swords and uh, you could swing the swords around at 360 degrees. It was just a really cool, uh, it was just a cool game. And I just remember playing hours and hours and hours of that video game. Um, so Victory Road's probably my favorite. Uh, I also liked, uh, uh, there's, there's a game called Space Harrier that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I like Gauntlet and, uh, you know, all those kind of games as well. But, uh, but Victory Road was probably my, if I had to name a, an all-time favorite game. I'm a sucker for those, those early 90s, like, multiplayer cabinets. So, you know, I'm thinking, obviously, the X-Men game and, like, Ninja Turtles. I think the oh, Simpsons yeah. did one. The, the Simpsons was one that was in the, uh, entryway of god it was one of the like caldor type stores when those things existed near where we grew up and that Bra- sucker was it was bradley's there. because bradley's, bradley's yes <laughs> it was there forever it was there i was remember playing that with my baby brother who's 10 years younger than i was and i am and he was old enough to, you know, be able to see over it, which means that had to be there until around the year two thousand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was a there was another game called Wizard of War that I really liked, which was like a maze, but you two people would play. You said multiplayer. Yeah. Two people would play, but you were this little uh, this little soldier walking around a maze, uh, and there were monsters trying to kill you, but you were also trying to kill the other player. And I remembered it would it would taunt you, and it, and it so when the game was over, it would you know a recorded voice would come on and tell you to play again or don't be such a loser or something like that. And uh, you saying that it, being in a, the lobby of a department store. So what, I remember Wizard of War and Joust were always in the, the lobby of this one department store, and uh, I love those games. <laughs> I got a I got a couple of questions that might get a no comment because they're not ready to be announced or anything. All right. So I take my chance. All right, um, do it. <laughs> first, uh, will we be getting any more of The Damned anytime soon? Uh, yes, I just don't know when. Um, you know, Brian Hurt and I have always intended to tell him. We've always had a much bigger story in mind for The Damned. Um, and it, it can be a little frustrating for us that it hasn't happened. And I mean, that was the the damned was my first real professional comic work. Um, and in all that time, we've never been able to tell the full story that we wanted to tell. So it's a little frustrating in that regard. But uh, but we continue to talk about it and try to figure out what the best way to get that entire story out to everybody. So. Uh, the answer is yes, you'll get more of it. I just don't know when that's going to be or how that's going to be presented. Perfectly fair answer. Um, and number two, uh, a Harrow County TV series was announced in development with Sci-Fi a bit ago. Um, is that process still grinding along slowly as <laughs> television development processes tend to? Yes, it's uh, it's it's very much still uh, still underway, and and you know it's it's a sort of a hurry up and wait kind of scenario. But uh, but yeah, it's it's still you know it's it's still things are still going moving forward. 
um, it's one of those, uh, you know, I've now learned over the years that, uh, you know, I'll believe that it's happening when I see the credits rolling, you know, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the, it's just the, the nature of, of how Hollywood works. It's kind of a, a slow machine. No, no comments there. Good for me. <laughs> That's right. Good job. You avoided the no comment question. Oh, man. Uh, so you mentioned the, the library show uh, coming up, which will actually be after this episode airs. Do you have any other uh, cons or store signings uh, in your near future? Um, the next show I'm doing, uh, I can't remember which one's first. I'm doing both Baltimore Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con. Just don't remember. I know they're right around the same time, but I don't remember which one's first. I think that. New York oddly is first this year. Usually yeah, it's so, the other way around. Yeah. So uh, at New York, uh, all of the uh, of Team Unearth will be there. So uh, Kyle will be there with me, and and Baltimore will be there with me. We're going to be set up in Artist Alley, and we've got some. We're working on some some exciting, cool stuff for for New York Comic Con. And then uh, at Baltimore, I'm going to be setting up with Aftershock, uh, mm. so I'll be I'll be wherever Aftershock is uh, is set up at that convention. I've never been to Baltimore before, but uh, uh, the, the first time for everything. Yeah, I, I've I've heard nothing but good things about Baltimore. Um, that's about the time the next volume of uh, Dark Earth starts, correct? Uh, yeah, you know, it, or dark, it may did, be. I say, did I say Dark Earth? I meant Dark Earth. You arc. said Dark Earth. Well, Unearth, you know, Dark Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so Dark Earth after the flood should be starting right around that. So I'd be really surprised if they don't have, you know, uh, you know, a, a Baltimore exclusive cover or something like that for that. Don't don't hold me to that, but I'd be surprised if they don't. Uh, but yeah, that that book starts up right around that time. Um, and it's going to be a new number one, so it'll be you know a new jumping on point for for the dark arc uh but yeah uh that'll be right around baltimore good good catch uh what are you reading right now um what a wonderful question um i (laughs) i just read i'm pretty backed up on on the books i read and Mm -hmm. uh uh, my local comic shop just closed down uh, a little mm. bit ago, so I haven't been, uh, you know, I'm kind of in between places to get my my single issues. Uh, but I do read a lot in trade, and I just read Descender by Jeff, my, by one of my mortal enemies, Jeff Lemire. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and it's just such a good book. And I just, uh, I, ju- I read the first couple of trades of Deadly Class, but I just started reading sort of the whole Deadly Class uh, you know everything that's come out in the big hard covers. I'm reading right now, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm rereading a bunch of Hellboy stuff right now. How, f- how far back? You going back to the beginning, or? Yeah, I'm going back. I, I went back to the very beginning, so I'm rereading everything going forward. You know, from from the earliest stages to you know the to what's uh, you know what's coming coming down the the line. I'm also reading a lot of a lot of prose stuff right now. Oh, mm-hmm. um, I'm reading, uh, Paul Tremblay has a book of short stories I'm reading called Growing Things, which is kind of awesome. Um, so I've been reading that and I've been reading some Jonathan Jans. Uh, he kind of is a, I feel like his books are, are take, they take me back to, you know, the, the horror novels of, of the eighties and nineties. So I'm reading some of his books like House of Skin. Um, 
and uh and yeah just a lot of and i seem to always be rereading some book or another but uh but those are the those are the the sort of the new new prose things that i'm reading right now excellent sweet uh colin as we're wrapping up uh, how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed <laughs> um the best place is probably i mean i i have social media on you know facebook and instagram and twitter but twitter is the best the best place to connect with me and my you know it's just my name cullen bun at cullen bun um that's probably the the where i'm most active on social media um, and I have a website, which is just cullenbun.com, but, uh, absolutely Twitter is the, that's what I'd say is your first, first is the first line of stalking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cullen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!